Today's reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining in this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You ever played that game where there's several images that look almost exactly the same, but you have to pick out which one is actually different? It's kind of, I guess it's called spot the difference game. My, my kids have little booklets full of those. And inevitably, they'll be looking at, you know, four images and they'll say, Daddy, Daddy, help, help. We can't find the difference. Help us find the difference. And so I'll sit down and I'll look at these four images and inevitably after, you know, a couple minutes, I just get frustrated, right? Because they all look exactly the same, but there's one minor difference somewhere. And then eventually, you know, after minutes and minutes and frustration, I'll, I'll find that, that little minor difference, right, that sets this one image apart from the rest. So far in our study here of the church in Corinth, we're seeing what is somewhat like that game going on, where the, the church in Corinth isn't really any different than the community around it. That the church community of Corinth is in many ways exactly like the, the city and the, and the culture and the world around it, like that spot the difference game. You kind of look at it and go, I can't see the difference. That's what Paul's been, been dealing with in Corinth. And you'll notice he says in, in verses 10 to 11, uh, 9 to 10, as he, he calls out unrighteousness, he says in verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed. See, Paul's setting up there. There's a distinction. There's a difference. You were this, but now you're this. And it's not like the spot the game difference where it's going, ah, we're, I can't quite see. It. No, there's, there's a distinction. And yet that's been lost in this church in Corinth. I said last week that the primary distinction of the church is faith and repentance, not sinless perfection. Right? That Jesus Christ forms his church through faith and repentance not sinless perfection, but repentance 
right, leads to change. There's fruit that is associated with repentance. Jesus says it in Matthew 3, right? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, another way to say it is the fruit of repentance is distinct. And that's what Paul is beginning to answer here. What is the distinction? What is distinct about this new community that's called by Jesus Christ? What's the fruit of repentance? And we're going to see here the distinction is a new identity that produces new motives, that produces new practices. And we're actually going to work our way backwards in this passage. So we're going to start at the end with new identity. Verses 9 to 11, we see that, that Paul is explaining how someone inherits or receives the kingdom of God. In other words, what qualifies you to inherit the kingdom of God? What qualifies you to enter the kingdom of God? And Paul's going to start with what disqualifies you. Right, so we're going to start there in verses 9 to 10. Notice he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, who are the unrighteous? Well, he lists it into verse 9, into verse 10. Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. That's a long list. A couple of things I want you to notice about that list. Okay? Number one, it's broad. It's broad. Even when Paul talks about sexual immorality, it's broad. Notice he gives three, he talks about it in three ways. He says the sexually immoral, okay? The Greek word is porneia. That just refers to, that's everything. Sex outside marriage, pornography, it's, a, it's, a, it's all encompassing. But then he talks about those who commit adultery in their marriage. Then he talks about those who engage in homosexuality. One of them's not worse than the other. They are all perversions of how God has designed sexuality to function. They all fall outside of God's design. So it's broad. And then it even gets broader beyond sexuality into the rest of the list. Okay, that's the first thing to notice about the list. The second is this. Notice that all those sins that are listed are what they are contributing to the conflict in this church in Corinth. The grievances, the conflict, which are leading to lawsuits, we'll get to it. But it's being caused by all of these sins because all of these sins are about tearing down the other person or hurting the other person or offending the other person, right? Look at it. Look at, uh, so adultery, right? That violates the marriage covenant. That is incredibly hurtful on the other. Thieves steal from others, right? Robbing people of what belongs to them, hurtful. The greedy, taking advantage of others, the revilers, that's a word that means verbal abuse. That's just, verbal abuse is just tearing somebody down, right? It's tearing somebody down. Swindlers, those are ones that just scam, they, they're scam artists. They're gonna scam you out of your property and possessions. They're taking, right? You see, all these sins are about tearing down the other. And that's leading to these grievances in the church. It's leading to the conflict, right? So that's the second thing to note about this list. And then the third to note is that, and this is the important one, that you are disqualified from the kingdom of God by your sin. You disqualify yourself from the kingdom of God by your sin. Now, that's really important to remember when we get to what qualifies you, which Paul picks up here in verse 11. So what qualifies you to enter the kingdom of God, to receive the kingdom of God? 
Look at verse 11. And such were some of you. I love that. These young believers in this young Corinthian church, they were that. Like all of us, right? They were that. But God says, but... Paul says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says to him, listen, you were disqualified by all of that sin that I just listed. But now you've been qualified, right? Your status has changed. You've been qualified now by the kingdom, for the kingdom. But here's the key. You were disqualified by your sin. And notice what Paul's gonna say here. You're not now qualified by your lack of sin. Because look at verse 11 again. Those three verbs, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. They're all past tense, something that happened in the past to these believers. And they're passive, which means that they, they are being acted upon that God is acting upon them. They didn't wash themselves. They didn't sanctify themselves or justify themselves. That God did this. So you see the difference. They disqualified themselves from the kingdom as you and I do by our sin, but we don't qualify ourselves by a lack of sin. We're qualified for the kingdom by God's work on us, outside of us, that God does the work. Another way to say it is you are qualified for the kingdom of God by someone else's work on your behalf. Namely, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to wash you, to sanctify you, to justify you. Now that's good news. Back in 2000, I, was, uh, I had the privilege of going on an amazing tour of the White House. Phenomenal tour. It was a behind the scenes tour. All the commoners were behind that red rope in long lines to get a generic tour of the White House. And me and my friends were on the other side of the red rope, walking down the hallways like we owned the place. We got to see everything. And this, this tour guard, this, this, this guide was taking us. We got to go in the Oval Office. I got to stand next to the desk of the most powerful man in the world. We ate in the White House cafeteria with a bunch of very important people eating around us. It was good food, really good food. Do you know what qualified me to enter the depths of the White House? It was my name. It was my hard work. It was who I was. In fact, I... I called the president and he saw my name come up on his cell phone and he picked up and he said, Keith, what do you need? <laughs> and I said, Mr. President, can you give me and my friends a really in-depth tour of your White House? And he said, absolutely. Is that what qualified me? Of course not. What qualified me to enter the depths of the White House? What qualified me is that I was a friend of three-star general Robert Noonan. 
I was in the depths of the White House on his merits, not my own. His daughter was a good friend of mine. In the same way here, listen, you disqualify yourself for the kingdom by your sin. You don't qualify yourself by your lack of sin. You are qualified for the kingdom of God based on the work of someone else and someone else merits, and that's Jesus Christ alone. That is good news. And that's the beginning of when we talk about a new identity, it starts there. Now, what exactly, if you're qualified by the work of Christ alone, someone else's merits to enter the kingdom of God, then what exactly is this new identity? We go back to the three verbs there in verse 11. Three verbs, they're beautiful. The first one, you were washed. That word in the Greek appears one other time in the New Testament. And it's in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, when it says, be baptized and have your sins washed away. You were washed, past tense. That means that Jesus scrubbed you, cleaned you, washed you clean, which means this. You are no longer the guilty one. That's not your identity. You're no longer the shameful one. We sing it every so often, the song in Christ alone. No guilt in life, no fear in death. That's the power of Christ in me. No guilt in life. You're no longer the shameful one. You're no longer the guilty one. Okay, you've been washed. That's the first verb. Second verb, you were sanctified. That word means to be set apart for sacred use. You have been, past tense, not by your own doing, by God working on you, has set you apart for his use, not the world's use. That now you're identified by God's purposes for you, not the world's purposes for you which means you're no longer defined by worldly success or failure, vocational success or failure, parenting success or failure, athletic or academic success or failure. That doesn't define you anymore because you have been sanctified, set apart. God's purposes over your life and God's purposes for your life define you. You've been set apart. And then the third verb there, you were justified. You were justified. That means you were declared righteous. Not with your righteousness, not something in you cleaned up. You were declared righteous. You received the righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith and repentance. Which means that Jesus Christ is now your righteousness. When God sees you, he sees holy and blameless and righteous based on the merits of Jesus Christ. And what that means from an identity level is you're no longer defined by your sin. So you see that list in, in verses nine and 10 that every one of us to some degree is guilty of. That's no longer what defines you. If you're in Christ, you have been declared righteous. You're the righteous one in Christ. And so you're no longer defined by your sin. Now let me, by way of application, let me point out the sharp distinction, sharp distinction of being outside of Christ versus being in, in Christ. Outside of Christ, you define yourself. 
Okay, and that is, the, that is the marching orders of our world, right? Define yourself. Make a name for yourself. Set yourself apart. You can do that by your wealth. You can do that by your body. You can do that by your clothing. You can do that by your car, your home, your, your success in business, your success in parenting. You can do that by the, your boyfriend, by your girlfriend, there are so many ways to define yourself. I remember my freshman year of high school, I was not a believer. I was outside of Christ. And I remember I had my first dating relationship. And I started dating a girl named Karen. And I never will forget. Listen, this is how powerful this is. 30 or so years later, okay, I just dated myself. It's been 30 years and I remember walking into my high school and someone came up to me and said, Keith, are you dating Karen? Wow, she used to date Eric. You're going, what's the big deal? Listen, Eric was mainstream, popular, he was the man in the high school. Do you know how good that felt? To be admired. And it lasted about a month. And it was gone. We broke up. You know what that taught me though? Outside of Christ, you make a name for yourself. And you can do it by the person you date. You can do it in a number of ways. Outside of Christ, you define yourself and it's fleeting and it's temporary and it rises and falls depending on what you try to attach yourself to. In Christ, Jesus Christ defines you. He says, you're washed. You're not the guilty one anymore. You're not the shameful one. He says, you're sanctified, you're set apart. God's purposes for your life now define you. That never changes and you're justified. You are declared righteous. Your sin no longer defines you. Now that's, an identity. That's an identity in Christ that never changes. And that's the first distinction we see of what it means to be called into this community of the kingdom of God, a new identity. But the new identity leads to new motives. New identity leads to new motives. And we see this in, in verses seven and eight, where Paul addresses the new motives. So look at verse seven. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Now, apparently, these Corinthians were suing one another. Okay, think church, think body right here of Christ, and you just start suing one another, okay? Now, these were, these were most likely civil lawsuits, so they were, they were small cases, minor cases. But a little bit of context uh, in, in Roman colonies, in the Roman world, which Corinth was a Roman colony, about how lawsuits worked. Criminal lawsuits tended to be fair and objective. But civil lawsuits were marked by corruption. You, judges and juries were actually uh, paid for a favorable verdict. And so you could, you could pay a judge or a jury to get a favorable verdict in civil lawsuits. It was fairly corrupt. And so what we see here, what was happening is that these Corinthians were using economic and social power 
to go outside the church to an unbelieving judge in this civil court system to pay off and to get what they wanted and to exploit someone else in the church. There was a way to do that. And they went outside the church to get what they wanted. And so what, what Paul's saying here is that just lawsuits, period, are a loss for you. Why? Because the underlying motivation of these lawsuits that he's speaking of here in the Corinthian church were to win and to get what you wanted no matter the damage it caused to the other person. That's what was happening. John Calvin, he, he comments, he says this about what was going on. Parties involved in these lawsuits were motivated by greed, impatience, revenge, hostility, and obstinacy. So the fact that a Christian brother or sister was taking another Christian brother or sister to court, in and of itself, they were punting on the command to love neighbor. You see, one of the primary distinctives of the new community that Jesus Christ calls, that is called the church, is a motive of love. In fact, Jesus sums up God's entire law, God's entire list of commands with two commands. Love God and love your neighbor. And that's the motive he's driving to here in verses seven and eight. When he says, why not rather suffer wrong why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? You see, the motive of love is marked by a desire to advantage the other while disadvantaging yourself. That, that is what the motive of love is marked by. A willingness, a desire to disadvantage myself in order to advantage the other. And you see what's happening here in Corinth. Just the opposite. Right? They were advantaging themselves while disadvantaging the other. Right? Just the opposite. And Paul's saying, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded for the sake of Christ? And in doing so, love your neighbor. And Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, which is a sermon he gives that really does set apart the distinctiveness of the kingdom of God, set against the backdrop of the world. He says this, Jesus says in Luke chapter six, verses 27 to 31, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And then Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, says something very similar in his letter of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Listen to this 
leaving you an example so that you might follow in his, in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, that verbally abused, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The underlying motivation that Paul is talking about here in verses seven, eight is this. I would rather lose than dishonor Christ. I would rather lose socially. I would rather lose financially than to dishonor Christ by failing to love my neighbor. And here's the connection to identity in Christ. What can you lose that you don't already have in Christ? What can you lose that you don't already have in Christ? If you lose money, if you're defrauded and you lose money, you already have riches in Christ. You have treasure stored up for you in the new heavens and the new earth. If you lose reputation or status, social status, you already have acceptance and approval from Jesus Christ. If you lose power, if you lose control, you already have the sovereignty of Jesus Christ in your midst. What do you have to lose that you don't already have in Christ? So Paul says, let us endure injustice. Let us be defrauded to honor Christ, to let God bring justice. If you don't have Christ, you have everything to lose. If you have Christ, you have nothing to lose. So you've got new identity that feeds a new motive that feeds new practices. New practices. Look at verse one. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Okay, so again, they're going to court against each other outside the church to an unbelieving judge. And they're doing this, as I've said, to, to get what they want, to exploit the other, right? That they're going to court like this. And then we, we read uh, a, a Paul's description of this or even a further reason why not to do this in verse two. If the world is to be judged by you, which what he's saying there is the scriptures say that, when, that in Christ, we will reign with Christ and we will actually judge the world with Christ when he returns. So if that's true, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? If you're gonna be with Christ judging the world when he returns, why now would you go outside the church to get a verdict from the world? Right? That's his argument. Now, let me just pause and make a comment here. Does this mean that a Christian should never resort to court action? I'm gonna make a real quick comment here. The answer is no. Okay, the scriptures speak of it. The apostle Paul appeals to the Roman judicial system. He appeals to Roman law several times for the purpose of advancing the gospel, not to advance himself. We see in Romans 13, God establishes civil government. That includes the judiciary, right? That God appoints judges, to bring order, to maintain uh, the, the, the well-being of society and of people. Okay, so it's, it's not, Paul's not talking about that here. All my judges and lawyers are breathing a sigh of relief, okay? No, what he's talking about here is the Corinthian church using lawsuits 
to get what they want and hurt and offend the other. And what we see in verses seven and eight, when you look at what they were doing when they were suing, there were two primary actions that were being taken, okay? In verses seven and eight, you see that they were either defending themselves because they felt they had been wrongly treated or they were attacking because they were gonna defraud someone else and get property or resources from them. So what you see in their going to court, there were two primary actions. They were either defending themselves or they were attacking. Now, you may not be able to relate to taking someone to court. You go, what in the world? But I absolutely guarantee that you can relate to attacking and defending in relationships, in community. That's primarily what was happening here. They went to the courts to get it done, but they were either defending or attacking. And we all know what that looks like in community, in relationships. Attacking and defending that litigious spirit, it destroys community. It destroys intimacy. It tears down community. In fact, in a, in a, in a litigious environment, there's an absence of community because all that it's about is who's gonna win, who's gonna lose. Who's gonna be right, who's gonna be wrong? Now, if you're married, you see this play out in marriage. And let me just say this. You can be right in your marriage. You can feel good about being right. You can win the argument in marriage. And you can absolutely ruin your marriage. You can attack and you can defend in marriage, in relationships. And when that happens, it tears apart the relationship. You see, when you're living out of your identity in Christ, you lose the right to be right. And beyond that, you lose the need to be right. You lose that right in, in, in an effort, in a desire to love the other. And so you lose the need to attack or defend. If you're in a relationship if it's marriage, if it's a friendship, if it's parenting, parent-child, if you're in a relationship that's marked by attacking and defending, then you gotta backtrack to, am I really living out of my new identity in Christ? Because the identity of Christ frees you from having to do that. It frees you from having to attack. It frees you from having to defend. And it frees you to love. This is what Paul calls for. So look at, look at verse five. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? So here's what he's calling for, right? Okay, so you've got a conflict in the body. They're going to court. Paul says, quit going to court. So what are they supposed to do? Verse five, settle a dispute. That phrase means mediation. Rather than the wise person acting as judge to, to render a verdict, you're right, you're wrong, you win, you lose, you're feeling good, you're damaged, no, the wise person acts as a mediator, which brings the two parties together seeking reconciliation and seeking the good of the other. That's very different than a litigious right-wrong verdict being handed down. It's not about who's right. Within the body of Christ, it's about reconciliation and both parties leaning towards each other 
to seek the good of the other and seek reconciliation. That's what settle a dispute means. It's mediation. That's what takes place in the body of Christ. The goal is the well-being of the other. So here's the question I would leave you with. Is your goal to be right? Or is your goal to lay down your rights to love the other? Is your goal to be right? Is your goal to win? Or is your goal to lay down your rights to love the other? When Jesus hung on the cross, the crowds were shouting, yelling, and clamoring for him to prove himself, to show everyone he was right. You remember when he was hanging on the cross? What did they say? The crowds yelled, if you're the son of God, come down. Jesus, prove yourself. Show us you're right. Then they said, then they shouted, he saved others. He can't save himself. If he's the king of Israel, he'd come down off the cross and then we would believe. Again, Jesus, prove yourself. Show yourself to be right. You see, Jesus Christ laid down his rights to love you. He laid down his rights to love you, to die, to go into the tomb, to raise from the dead, to give you new life. And when you are loved by Jesus and you are experiencing the love of Jesus Christ and you're defined by him, then he empowers you to give up your rights. He empowers you with freedom from having to win, from freedom to having to be right, to lay down your rights and to love the other. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we confess our need to be right. We confess our litigious spirit. We confess our attacking and our defending to the ones we love most. And we confess that all of this flows out of functionally not living out of our new identity in you, Jesus. And so we pray. Father, we pray that what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and by extension, what he writes to us, that we would understand the power of what he writes in verse 11. You were that, but that we would believe that we're washed. Our identity is no longer the guilty ones, the shameful ones, that we've been sanctified, that God's purposes over us define us, that we've been justified, we've been declared righteous, we're no longer defined by our sin. All that beautiful work and activity that you've done for us that we would live out of that. Oh, and Father, that it would, it would fuel, produce, birth a motive of love in us that would desire to advantage the other while disadvantaging ourselves. That we would lose the need to be right and be overwhelmed by your love, Jesus, and the desire to love others. As we worship now, would you capture the affections of our heart that we would leave here 
understanding our identity and who we're defined by. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.